Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Half Hour Call podcast. Hosted by me, Harry Sutherland. Please be aware this podcast may contain strong language. Going forward in this series of interviews, I'll be talking to professionals across the industry who will give us their stories and also an insight into the arts industry today. My guest today is the Huddersfield legend. It is, of course, Mr. Danny Corain. Since graduating Leeds University with a degree in physics, Danny had a career change into the arts and made his television debut in 2007 in a hit cult show, Skins. Following that, Danny was in Alan Bennett's The History Boys at the Wyndham's Theatre. After this, Danny starred in arguably the defining play of the decade, Jerusalem by Jez Butterworth as Davy, with Mark Rylance leading the all-star cast. The hit play began at the Royal Court, onto Broadway and back to London to finish at the Apollo Theatre on Shaftesbury Avenue. After this, Danny starred in The Inbetweeners, trolleyed as a series regular, before more recently returning to the world of Jez Butterworth in the rock and roll psychedelic retelling of Roman Britain called Britannia. Danny starred in the 2018 hit film Rovers, joined the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise in Salazar's Revenge and the 2018 Mike Lee stunner called Peter Lou. Danny's career has spanned across all mediums, but focusing on theatre, where he has starred in two plays that arguably defined a decade. Good afternoon, Mr Danny Corain. How are you, mate? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. It's lovely to speak to you today. Yeah, you too. Thank you for asking me on. I'm, uh, I'm excited to share some, well, I'd like to say wisdom, but I'm not sure it will be that much wisdom. <laughs> well, let's know. hope so. I'm yeah. sure it will be. Yeah. Do you mind if we uh, kick off today with some quick-fire questions just to get us into it? No, go for it. Go for right. it. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Pre-show coffee or post-show drink? Post-show drink. Football or rugby? Football. Beer or cider? Beer. Play or musical? Play. Classic or modern? Modern. Jazz or reggae? Reggae. Oasis or blur? Oasis. Shakespeare or Chekhov? Chekhov. And the last one... What is the Northern tradition of Mad Friday that I hear so much about? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mad Friday. So, and actually, it's it, it's actually a West Yorkshire thing, so it's quite colloquial. But um, the last Friday before Christmas, everybody goes out and gets drunk. I mean, like mad drunk, a big night out, and uh, they call it Mad Friday. It's like when the council finished work on the Friday before Christmas, and so the town is Huddersfield is rammed full of people and everybody just has a great time. Brilliant. That sounds like my kind of night. <laughs> Mad Friday, exactly. Mad Friday. Where did it where did that start off from then? I've no idea. I think it I think it's to do with um I think it's to do with council workers, but not sure. I'm not sure of where it actually comes from historically, but I've always known it as Mad Friday. So Brilliant. I mean you mentioned they're talking that you're from are you from Huddersfield? Is that where you're from? Yeah I'm from Huddersfield, yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember your first ever experience of going to the theatre? Was that in Huddersfield or? Uh, it will have been going to watch like the Huddersfield uh, Operatic Society doing a musical or a pantomime mm-hmm. at the Lawrence Batley Theatre, probably. And also going to the West Yorkshire Playhouse. Like I went there a few times to watch things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So going all the way back, if you can cast your mind back this far, a lot of people won't know this, that you have a degree, don't you? Yes, I do have a degree. Um, It's an interesting one. I've got a degree in physics with astrophysics from the University of Leeds. So I studied that 
uh, from 2003 to 2006 at Leeds University. And uh, I got a 2-1. And, um, yeah, it's sort of a mad thing to do and then become an actor. But um, people always ask me, oh, is there, there's no connection, you know, science. It's not like... But weirdly, the things that you'd study in physics at that level require so much imagination to sort of, like, imagine an electron whizzing around an atom or the spin of electrons or how fast a galaxy comes together or, you know, um, things like that, that the, the, the imagination you use is similar to the imagination you use when you think in pictures, when you're acting, mm. it's, it's actually closer than you think. Yeah. So what, what, what was the career change then? Cause you went to the NYT after that, didn't you? Well, oh, I, 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 I'd always done a little bit of like acting, um, in Huddersfield because my sisters used to um, dance and stuff and so I got into it that way and I was asked to go in and do things that way and also um, but it was a hobby it was always a hobby and I was always really good at school like um, with physics and maths and those things so I was all I, I really wanted to work for either British Nuclear Fuel or be a physics teacher. And I had an offer of a job at British Nuclear Fuel after my degree. But at the same time as doing my degree, I was at the National Youth Theatre and I was lucky enough to do a play there during my degree where I got spotted in a play by the agent I'm still with now. And um, I had just had a choice then in 2006, do I want to be an actor for a bit and see how it goes or do I want to just go and get a normal job? And I thought, well, I'll let's be an actor for a bit because it's if someone says you're good at your hobby, you feel like you should give it a go. So I went and the rest is history, so they say. So what do you remember what the play was that you got spotted in? It was a play called Falaraki, the Greek Tragedy, at the Lyric Hammersmith, and it was a device piece about a lad's holiday. And I played a character in that. And yeah, my agent saw me in that and then Subsequently, she came to watch the other shows I did at National Youth Theatre because she wanted me to fin. She didn't want me to finish my degree, whereas some of the other agents were like, "Oh, quit your degree and come and be an actor." And I was sort of like, "No, I want to finish it. Hmm. I want to get the degree and then then I'll come and have a go at acting." Because so, at least you've got that that back then, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. It's behind you then, and and also where I'm from, like not many people go into the arts, so hmm. it's it's sort of um it's a bit of a random thing to do. It took my dad some time to get his head around it. And my mum, having got this really amazing degree, and I said, no, I'm just going to go and, you know, be an artist in London. They were like, really? You know, you could do, you could be an investment banker with the degree you've got. And I was like, no, I think I'm just going to go and mess around for a bit. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's worked out really well, yeah. yeah. Who's laughing now, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So your first job then out of NYT was in the hit show Skins, wasn't it? Yeah, like but the second audition I ever had was for an episode of Skins. Now, I think it was beginner's luck. I didn't have a clue what I was doing in a like an audition room with a, you know, going on tape and anything. I was just, I think I was so overawed by it that I didn't care. Mm. And then I ended up getting this job and, um, yeah, I did a couple of weeks filming in Bristol. Um, and then just after that, then I got first like professional theatre role in uh, the History Boys in the West End. Mm. the theatre production so yeah what, what was that like taking over because you, you took over the role didn't you from James Corden didn't you it was there was James Corden and there were a couple of other actors who, who did it and then I was like the last person to do it 
from the National Theatre to do. We did a we did um yeah, it was interesting to take over from people because obviously there's obviously a history there with that part. So what I tried to do is make it completely different to the way anybody else had done it. So hmm. I, made, I made that character rather than like a clown, I made him more uh he was sort of more naughty, mm-hmm. like a naughty schoolboy. And it meant it was fun to play then every night. I wasn't trying to be funny. It was just it was just being this character that was sort of naughty and irreverent and yeah. And it was Tibbs, wasn't it? Was that his name, Tibbs? That's a character, Tibbs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Tibbs. Sorry. Yeah. I Tim's. mean, when when I, before we uh, before COVID and shutdown, I actually saw your face because your face is on the poster in the gents' toilets at the Wyndhams. <laughs> in the toilets, of course it is. <laughs> I was there seeing Leopold stat. And oh, then right, yeah. above the arena is a poster with your with your face right in the middle. How was Leopold's that? I never got to see it, but I wish I'd seen it. I hope it comes back. Yeah, I think I think they're planning on um, on uh, bringing it back. As far as I know, the set is still in there, just with all dust yeah. sheets over it. Oh, I'd love to. Go, I'd love to go and see that. I love Stoppard. Make I sure you sit in the in the dress circle though, so you go to Gents and see your face. In the- <laughs> 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 that's me. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Moving on from History Boys, there's, I mean, there's rumours of the revival of this play you were in, Jerusalem, which yeah. I think, I mean, you, you know, as you just said before we went live, that it was a turning point. Can you talk to us about your journey with Jerusalem and the effect that it's had? I think the, I think the main thing with Jerusalem was what an amazing play it was. It was and like cast it just had that thing where it doesn't happen that often in your career actually the more the, the longer I've been doing it where like all the elements align like the actors and the director and the writer they all there's something about the time that you get together that it all comes together in a in a really good way the mix and the chemistry is really good and that was just an amazing journey it was like being in a rock band I mean I, I I've never it, it, was, it was just fantastic. And obviously like, I learned so much. And the thing that I really got from it, rather than like career stuff and what jobs it led on to, more than anything is I learned so much standing opposite Rylands every night. Mm. And other people in it, like Tom Brook and Mackenzie Crook and Alan David, you were stood opposite people who were at the top of their game. And I was 20, I think I was 23 wow. when I started the journey. And, and so... I'd not trained, obviously. I mean, I'd done National Youth Theatre. So for me, it was like, and I had a really good part. And I was like, wow, this is this is intense. And it took me a while to settle into it at the Royal Court. I never found my feet because it was a confidence thing. Obviously, when you're young, you can go one or two ways. You can have that thing that I had when I got the part in Skins where I was so nervous I didn't care. But with I'd found, I'd found the nerves again with this one. So like when we were at the Royal Court, I, I struggled a little bit. But as we as we got moved on with the play, we took it to the West End and then to Broadway and back to the West End. The repetition of it and finding new stuff in it every night, I just built in confidence. Mm. And it was like, um, yeah, it was probably like, you know, when you, you know, football teams or rugby teams, the most improved player. Mm. I probably would have won that award, the most improved from like the first show to the last show, mm. I felt I learned everything on that job. So it was just um, a joy to be involved with, yeah. Yeah, because I, I know I never got to see it. I mean, getting like tickets were gold dust, weren't they? Yeah. They were gold yeah. dust. What, what was it like being in the centre of that? Because obviously from the outside, there was this thing bubbling away at the court and then it kind of went nuts, didn't it? It exploded. It, it, you know, it's arguably the defining play 
of the decade, isn't it? What was it like being in the centre of that? It was like, um, like I say, it was a bit like being in a rock band. And, and, but we were such a good family on it, little family unit. Like we all used to play aisle ball in the aisles of the theatre before every show for an hour. Like it was really playful. And it all, Mark sort of led that a lot. And, and the director, Ian, but mostly Mark was such a good, like, um, lead cast member because he sort of, I don't know, he led by example and we all, and he was really friendly and we all played these games together and he made it fun. It was never like, we were never too serious. It just felt, it didn't feel difficult. Hmm. It was like, you know, you've done plays before or, and you feel like, oh, this is a slog to get this up and on every night. It yeah. felt like when you got on the plane, I used to come on in my first entrance and it was all, the juggernaut was already running. I just had to jump on. Hmm and hold on to Mark, really, and just let him pull me through it. So it was, yeah. And and I like to say, you know, Ian Rickson's fantastic director and Jez Butterworth, an amazing writer. And, you know, you pinch yourself at that age to do something like that. And even to this day, I've done loads of plays and other things, and TV and film things, but that, you know, it only happens once every 20 years, that with a play, I think. Something that big and special. Mm. And what what was the rehearsal process like? Because I've I've read interviews where, well, even I think was it Broadway where it was a very loose in terms of direction, and also wasn't Jez in the room while you were writing it and rehearsing it? Wasn't it kind of evolving? Was, yeah, definitely. When when we first were at the Royal Court, there wasn't a script when I auditioned. Wow, really. what did you audition with then? There was a script, but it wasn't finished. And there was scenes, but the scenes didn't even match up to what the script was. So they sort of wrote the parts for the people that they ended up wanting in the end. So there were things to learn and read, but it wasn't the finished product, nowhere near it. I mean, the character names might have been similar, but there were loads of different characters in it. In the original one, Rooster was in a wheelchair. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so there was a huge difference. And so what happened was we were all offered parts without really knowing the size of them or what even the play was. Hmm. We all jumped at the chance, obviously, to work with those people and then... A couple of days before rehearsals, a massive script arrived. Huge, like the size of a yellow pages. <laughs> and it was like six hours long and I was reading it and they went, you're Davy. And I was reading this thing. I was like, oh my God, there's reams and monologues that this guy, this is incredible. Mm. Anyway, we read it on the first day of rehearsals and it read at six hours long. Wow. So we had to cut half of it and rewrite a lot of it during rehearsals. So we were getting, we only had 12 days from the last draft. Until, until the first preview. Fuck, 12 days. And it had changed a lot in that last draft, so it was... Um, but again, I don't remember it being that stressful. There was something about it that was just anarchic and, um, yeah, just not like anything else I've ever worked on, really. Hmm. And was it was it true that you went down to, to Pusey for the day? Is that true? Pusey, yes. Yeah. So the, the, the village Flintock in Jerusalem is... Um, um, actually based on Pusey, which is a place Jez had been to in the 90s, actually, when he was writing other things early in his career. He got away from London and he'd gone to Pusey and he met all these people and he met the guy that it's based on, Mickey Lee, in Pusey. So we went down there, we went to all the pubs that are in the play, met a lot of the people in the town. It was a crazy place. I've never been anywhere like that. Why, why, why was it so mental? I imagine in my it head this kind of like built village. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a little bit like the people in the play. It was like, it, weirdly, it's like this really nice picturesque village, but they're all, 
I've got to be careful what I say. They're not all on drugs. There's a lot of drug taking. It's like quite West Country in that way and quite a lot of like mysticism and and um, that hedonistic thing that you can find in the country sometimes. Mm. And it was, it was, I found it amazing to go down there. I mean, it really helped with the character because you met these people who just didn't care. They didn't give a shit. Mm. Both of them. So I, I, yeah, what a journey that was. I mean, before we, before we leave Jerusalem, do you have a favourite memory of it? Because you were involved for a long time, weren't you? Three years, was it, all, to, all told? Uh, yeah. Favourite memory? Probably the, the the second preview at the Royal Court. I've got two, actually. The okay. second preview at the Royal Court, when it really came together. The first preview was fine, but it was long, and we made cuts. And the second preview, we knew, we all knew, because the audience were just... And my best mate was in the second preview, and he said it's he'll never forget that feeling watching it. He said it was just wow, and he must have seen it about ten times over those three years because of that first preview. Just the second preview, he said it was just electric in the theater. You could feel, you felt like you were part of something that would that not been witnessed before. Mm. Um, and then another time was when we're on Broadway when um, Robert De Niro came to watch a matinee. No. And nobody knew he was in. And what used to happen, a lot of the A-listers used to come and then come to the dressing room after the show. Hmm. So we had everybody. I'm not going to name lists because it's just like, oh, name drop. But the one, De Niro came and he came in, he was like, wow. He was just like, wow. He said, I've never seen anything like that. That's a compliment, and, right? Yeah, a compliment. Yeah, he said it was just incredible. He said he was just moved to tears at the end and he said it was brilliant. So I mean, just put you, after that you can sort of retire. <laughs> you know, you know what I, mean? I said to my dad, I said, well, I might as well give up now. It's never going to be any better than that. So in a way, that's like curse sometimes because things don't live up to that to that job sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, a lot do, but a lot, you know, it's hard to compare to that. Like I might never do that again on Broadway. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I've done it once, so I can take that to my deathbed. Do you know what I mean? That sounds really. Sounds a bit over the top, but you know, yeah, no, it's, it's 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 clear, vivid, it's yeah, quite, it's quite um, quite beautiful, yeah, yeah. I mean, t- talking about Jez Butterworth, I want to, it's not really going on the timeline, but I want to drop into Britannia because yeah. there's so many. I think Britannia was made after, is it James Richardson saw Jerusalem? Didn't it come yeah. off the back of that, didn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. so I think James Richardson, who I'd worked with as well on a, on a really weird, um. I say weird. It was quite fun. A musical called Walking on Sunshine. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. So James Richardson was the um, producer on that, and um, he's um, yeah, he's related to Jez through Jez. It used to be J- James Richardson's sister. It was married to Jez. Okay. So that so they they know each other, and I think James Richardson in Jerusalem said, "Look, we need to make sort of TV show about this, not about Jerusalem itself, but about that archaic sort of history, British history." And that's when the idea for Britannia came up. So because mm. yeah. you, you appear in the second series, don't you, as this kind of tank of a man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. It was, um, yeah, I, what I mean, what an amazing show to be on. It was so much fun because it's so reverent and it, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Like I've been in other historical period dramas and it's like, you know, 
people thinking, oh, are these the right candles we should use and stuff like that. In Britannia, there's none of that. It's about it's quite entertaining, really. A bit like Jerusalem, it's got that anarchic sort of um fight and energy in it. Um and it was great fun to play that part. Like I don't always get to play those characters that are sort of hard. Mm. And um yeah, because you really beat the shit out of Julian, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, Julian, right. So, yeah, it was. Um, that was fun. There were fun days to film. We had such a laugh on that show. Mm. Like a great cast and crew, just like so much fun. Yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I love Britannia. It's, I'm looking forward to the third series, actually. We were going to be in the third. They wanted us to come back to play those parts again. Oh, did they? And then COVID happened and they sort of like had to cut the budgets and stuff because they did they've only they haven't even finished that third series yet. So we ended up not going back. They were gonna have us back, the the brothers for a couple of episodes. So it's a bit of a shame because it was so much fun to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's there's been a lot of that this year. You know, it's like where you've had jobs and things have moved and mm. I'll be looking forward to see that third series. I was gutted that you were cut though, man. That's gutting. No, I think, yeah, I think it was also dates and getting us all together. And then COVID came and it was, it's not going to work. So, because mm. I just, I just love that relationship and <laughs> the three of you just looking after the younger sister. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. It was so much fun. The other lads who made that were just, we had so much fun. Yeah. Can we uh, rewind a couple of years and talk about Trolley, if I can? Because we've yeah. spoken about theatre for a bit and I want to move on to TV. What was that like being a series regular? Because it was all of series three. You're a fish, the fishmonger, weren't you? I'm going to be really honest about Trollid. I but, like Trollid. But I, me, I was in a double act with an amazing actor called Adil Akhtar. BAFTA winner, fantastic. We played fishmongers. I don't know whether it's because it was the third season and they'd written lots of episodes, but we never felt, me and Adil, that we did it justice. And that's partly down to maybe the writing, but partly down to us as well. I feel like it's an, it was a great show, but I didn't... I don't know what it was. There was something chemistry... Not me and Adil, because we really get on, and we had good chemistry, but they didn't, we didn't really find our path in that show. It just seemed to be little vignettes that we did. I mean, it was a great thing to do, with fishmongers and throw fish at each other and like argue over a fish counter. And, yeah. And like, uh, teaching him to throw the ball, didn't you? And stuff. Yeah, teaching him that he never caught a ball in his life at like 35 years old. So it was fun. And it, there's some great funny scenes, but you know, like when you, that you always have those jobs as an actor, I think, where you fit, I do personally, where you feel like, oh, it was good and it was fine, but I wish it was 20% better. I wish we'd done a 20% better job on it. Do mm. you know what I mean? And I think it's important to have that. Not too much of that, but it's important to have that sort of, I don't know, critique of yourself. You think, I think, yeah, pushes yeah, sorry, you on. Carry on, sorry, carry on. Sorry to interrupt. No, it's all right. No, it's, um, I, th- I just think that critique of yourself and that inner voice, which is something that I struggle with because that inner voice can run away with itself sometimes. But actually, there's also a realism to the things that you're in. You can also be realistic about the fact that you might not have smashed that part. Mm. Um, but I learned a lot from that in the long run. And then it ended up, I think they wanted us back for season four, but both me and Adil had got other jobs in that time. Mm. I remember, I think Adil was doing Utopia season two, and then I was I did this huge medical drama for Sky called Critical, Jed Mercurio. And so then it sort of worked out good, well in the end because I didn't really miss Trollid because I'd, mm. I'd not found that character, I don't think. And so then I went and did uh, like a drama for Sky. And so 
you know, things all work out in the end. But it was still an amazing job and the people on it were brilliant. We just we just never felt I don't know, never felt in it. Mm. Do you think that's quite a, a sobering thought, maybe, as as an actor? Because, it, you know, if you have, say, 10 jobs and, say, two of them, you get that feeling. It reminds you to, oh, not reminds you, but you sort of get that maybe, the, the push, maybe. I mean, I, I sympathise exactly. You know, I've also had jobs where you just think, no matter how much I tried, it never it never landed for me personally. Is that sort of, am I describing that wrong or am I mild? No, no, I think, I think and I think, I think that's not a... That's a as an artist, that's a good place to be. Like, not every David Bowie album was the number one. Mm. Not every David Bo- Bowie album was incredible. And it's like I think finding those the ups and downs of it are part of it. It's really, you know, because I've struggled in the throughout my life at times with um depression, not massively, not like hugely but bits mild depression and sometimes that is linked to work and sort of like that overthinking mind especially having done a physics degree like my mind my my thoughts whirl faster sometimes than the characters i play mm-hmm. i tend to play like you know big northern characters or funny guys and so sometimes my thoughts overtake my my head sometimes when i'm doing a job and i can overthink it then and so having the, but having those jobs prepares you for the good ones Mm. and it opens up new ground in you to find new things I think yeah that's a really honest response thanks for that uh, yeah. we talk about working with Sean Bean if we can yeah, no. yeah. On, 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 on an upwards note could talk about working with Sean Bean on Wasted yeah Wasted was one of the one of my favourite things like I was, it was one of my like a lead role in a series I'd, I'd never really done and I, I got this lead role and um uh, in it, I play this guy called Morpheus, who is uh, he runs a comic book and he's really into Game of Thrones. And he's like a 25 year old virgin from the West Country and he loves Game of Thrones. And one day, he's having a tattoo done to impress a girl, and he passes out and he wakes up in a forest. And Sean Bean's there as Sean Bean. And so, the writers wrote this before they'd even asked Sean Bean. And I was like, You're never going to get Sean Bean to do an E4 show, you are never in a million years, anyway. He read it and loved it. And it really poked fun at Sean himself as an actor. Um, and it was an amazing show. We just, it's a shame we never did a second series because Channel 4 sort of loved it and it never, it never, it never came together. But it, it's one of the ones I'm most proud of, really, on screen. Because the character was nothing like me. He was sort of, he was sort of very geeky and very, very, um, well, I mean, he was a virgin and sort of, yeah, never been touched. And it was, yeah, that was another one that was like, that's another sort of signpost to where I go, oh, that was an amazing journey and part to play. Mm. I mean, like you said a couple of minutes ago, about you normally play these, you know, these these big northern characters, maybe to play someone a bit more sweet. How, how did you find that? Yeah, it was great fun. It was nice to find that sweetness in him. And, mm. and uh, without really planning it, having done all the character work before, he became... He became a little bit camp, not in a not in a not in a bad way. It was just that he was really sort of honourable. He wanted to be honourable. He wanted to do it right. He wanted to be sweet. So in one of the episodes, they go to a sex party and they'll just turn up and he brings a bag and he's brought oysters and yeah <laughs> beforehand and a comic in case he gets bored and oh bless you know, it's, quite, it's quite sweet. So yeah, it's nice to play those characters. You don't always get those guys. 
what a nice guy. I bet, I bet if, if this is like, based on a real person, I bet he's proper proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His real name, Morpheus, was Paul Durkin. You know, the Premier League referee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a Chelsea boy, so yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Paul Durkin is... Is his uh, real name Morpheus? So, but he changed his name by default to Morpheus, just Morpheus. Wow, what yeah. <laughs> what a name to change! Your name to. <laughs> are you are you a football man, Danny? Can we digress for a second? Huge. Are you huge? After we've done the podcast today, I will be watching Huddersfield Town take on Watford on my laptop. What time do you kick off? We kick off at three. Three. Okay, I won't hold you too long then. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. We've got enough time. But no, I'm a massive Huddersfield Town fan. Like, uh, my dad took me when I was four and I was hooked. And we've always been a bit rubbish. But I quite like that underdog thing. So Sometimes you've got to own it, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a bit hard because I'm a Chelsea boy and at the minute we're having an awful season and it's hard to kind of, st- <laughs> it's hard to kind of still stand, <laughs> stand by it, you know? Yeah. No, this, I mean, we've had, we've had bad seasons, but most of the time, like, we're quite... Um, quite realistic where I'm from everyone's quite realistic with themselves and honest about it and you know we're never going to be a Chelsea or a Man United but if we can have the odd season in the Premier League and have some good cup runs and challenge in the championship then that that's good by me mm. yeah amen to that yeah so, uh, let's go back to acting <laughs> back to acting can we talk about um I actually saw you live believe it or not at Regent's Park Open Air Theatre in uh, when was that? That was 2018. In As You Like It, found yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Because that was an amazing production. Uh, you know, after that boxing ring went away, and we were in some kind of Louisiana swamp esque, yeah, kind of Arden Wood. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, that was a. Fa- it was. I, I'd not been on stage. Um, I'd done a few plays with Headlong and Rob Ike, and then I'd not been on stage for five years. I'd been doing, you know, wasted and TV and stuff. So. When the opportunity to audition for Touchstone came along, I was like, I'd love to play that part because it's such a really, it's such a difficult part. But I've always liked As You Like It. There's something sort of, you could say it's quite Jerusalem-esque. It's like a Bacchanalian and they're all in this forest just sort of losing the, sh- losing the shit in the sunshine. And there's a joy to it. Uh, but Touchstone is such a difficult part normally. And so we we sort of, I thought outside the box and sort of tried to make him less of like a court jester, which is quite a Shakespearean Elizabethan thing. And I made him just a normal security guard who liked to be funny for the, for the princesses and Rosalind. And so I don't know, it really opened up that role. I mean, a lot of people, the reviews are really good and people for the first time ever sort of got touchstone in a different way. And so, and I felt it from the audience, people were laughing a lot. And, um, you know, it was, it's always great that taking a classic and sort of shaking the dust off it. Mm. Um, and I felt like we did that with that production and it was a great cast and a great director. And the sun shone for the whole three and a half weeks it was on. It was just, it was quite touching as a production, I think. I mean, for me, I think what, what was so great about your touchstone was, was it normalised him? Like, you know, like you said about court jesters, quite an Elizabethan take on it. But, you know, I remember when you're in the forest, you know, walking on your wellies and you had a fag in your hand and it, it, it just, it brought him into a, a sphere of consciousness that modern people can associate him with. Yeah, and I, and I always think that's important with Shakespeare because I feel like it's so easy. A lot of it goes over our heads anyway. I remember, I remember Jez Butterworth saying that um, 
Jez Butler was saying about Shakespeare. When we went to Broadway with Jerusalem, people were like, oh, they won't get this. The Americans won't understand a word we're saying. It's colloquial West Country dialogue. You know? And Jez was like, yeah, but they all watch Shakespeare. And a lot of us, even if you even if you know the play, maybe 50% of it line by line goes over your head. You know, you don't always follow every line of Shakespeare as you're watching it and exactly what they're saying. So what I've tried to do with Touchstone is, because he's got all these m- mental bits of dialogue that make no sense like jokes about pancakes and stuff it had to come from it had to be modernized in order for the audience to get him mm. and it made him like a bit laddie and a bit jokey and a bit blokey and 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 people really connected with that and that's an amazing if you ever get a chance to work at regent's park it's the best place to work in the summer it was so much fun mm. is it so, quite an exposing stage because it's basically nearly three almost like thrust almost isn't it it is, but there's something about it being outside that makes you feel like the audience are really on your side. Hmm. It's not like being in a West End theatre where it feels a little bit hoity-toity and everybody's had a glass of champagne before they started. Hmm. Yes, it's in a posh area in Regent's Park, but there's something about it being outside that feels more immediate in some respects. You feel like you're... you you're. I mean, the Greeks, the Greeks did it all outside, didn't they, in amphitheatres, and you sort of see why. There's something about that as the sun goes down that's sort of primal. You feel like you're sharing it with the audience rather than it, you know, sometimes in a traditional theatre, you feel like the audience are a long way away, mm. weirdly. And that was a boiling hot summer as well, wasn't it? That was- <laughs> oh, oh, I can't even tell you, man. And the guy, I, I had one scene with winter clothes on, but some of the other guys had to do songs with furs on. Oh, my God. 43 <laughs> degrees it was. Wow. Um, yeah. I saw, I saw an evening performance and I remember when, because when it gets dark, that place with the lighting is beautiful. And it, yeah. it, like you, you hark back to Jerusalem and it does sort of, excuse a wanky phrase, but bring the fairies out almost, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's really magical, that place. When the, when the lights hit those trees and mm. the breeze sort of stops, you know, at night when the breeze sort of stops, it's sort of, like I say, primal. And um, I'd love to work there again. Mm. Um, yeah, and I love doing classics. I, I I love Chekhov as well as Shakespeare. And I remember doing Three Sisters at the Young Vic back in the day. Mm-hmm. And Dick Andrews, that's another one that was like a bit of a a bit of a touchstone. It was just after Jerusalem. That's why we sort of moved past it. But it was another one of those where we did a Chekhov, but we tried to make it modern and interesting rather than like wicker, you know, wicker chairs and samovars. It had Nirvana and Nike Air Max trainers. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love stuff like that. I, th- I think you've got to do that, though, haven't you, with those old with those old plays? Otherwise, they just get locked in that kind of unrelatable world, wouldn't they? Yeah, definitely. I feel like, yeah, I feel like most of the best stuff I've seen recently is, is sort of like, I could say, wipe the dust off the front page of the script and gone. And it's not about being that radical. Like our, our Chekhov wasn't that radical. Like we didn't really change the line by line, but it was where it came from. We didn't do it in a way that was sort of English actory. Hmm. You feel like you're watching loads of people who went to RADA talk really well. You know, that's, I think, I think sometimes that switches me off sort of museum theatre. Hmm. Yeah. It's a great phrase that museum theatre. <laughs> I love that phrase. Can yeah. we, um, staying with 2018, a, a great film. I actually saw this film in Manchester, I think it was, Peter Lou, which was yeah. a, a great film and you had a great part in that. And you got to work with the amazing 
Mike Lee. Can you talk to us about that? Oh, what a, I can't, I haven't got a bad word to say about Mike Lee. What a legend. He's a genius. The way he works is so different to everybody, anything else that I've ever worked on. You know, you spend months in rehearsals, researching, building a character from the ground up. It was the most joyful experience. It was nerve wracking at times because sometimes you were turning up on set to do a speech as your character and you didn't have any lines when you turned up, you were literally improvising them on the morning and then filming them in the afternoon. Wow. Um, but I learned so much and we've stayed really, he's come, he's come to watch everything I've been in since Mike. He's such a real supporter of people. And we really got on artistically. Like I feel, yeah, I feel like um, a bit of a kindred spirit with him. He gets me, I got him and I'd like to work with him again in the future. If mm. he makes any more, which I think he will, but he's, yeah, and Peterloo was like, obviously about the Peterloo massacre and without going too deep into the history, it's, I'm from Huddersfield, which is quite close to Manchester. I never heard of the Peterloo massacre before I auditioned for it. And it's not really taught in schools enough, really. And um, it was just an amazing thing. So many wonderful actors, there's like a hundred actors in it who'd all gone through three months rehearsals to build the parts up. And... Um, yeah, I just you, you, again, he's one of those guys, one of those pinch yourself moments when you're in a room, you and Mike Lee on your own, and you're building a character that he's going to use in his film. I mean, he just, you could, again, it's one of those things you could retire after that, and that's just incredible. Yeah. And so I feel really lucky and privileged to have been part of that. Mm. Do you remember your first day meeting him? What was he like? Well, first time you meet him for an audition, and I can't there's a bit of a thing with Mike, like you can't talk too much about the process. People know about the process, but like when you're auditioning, there's no script. You don't even know what character you're going to play. You do like a weird physical improv and then you have a recall and it's, it's odd. There's no script. You're not really doing any acting in that. Well, you are, you're doing a, you, you sort of play a character in the meeting, but it's, um, he's sort of, it's sort of like it's like working with like your granddad or something because he's really friendly and but he's got a wealth of knowledge and experience and he he never forgets anything. I don't know how he does it. His head's like a computer because there's no script even when you shoot. He's just got on little cards every scene he wants to shoot and just a description of what happens. So, so there was, so there was no script then in, involved. No, 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 because an old well, I think on some, sometimes he has a script when it's a smaller cast when they've had more improv together, but because there was so many different strands to Peterloo and he had to like rehearse so many different people, mm. we never, we did improvs as the characters in the rehearsal rooms, but not anything that would end up in the film. It was just to build the character. I think sometimes when it's a smaller film, he has a script to work from. So what it was like, one of the best scenes in it was when we were on a moor and we play these real rebel rousing guys mm. called the Blanketeers. And we had to sort of come up with this scene, like at literally at 8am, we had an hour to rehearse it and we all had to give a speech. We didn't know we were giving a speech. So we all had to cut, literally come up with it. Now we'd done all the work, but that's quite nerve wracking then because you can't even remember what you've said in the improv. And you're like, oh my God, what did I say? You try and repeat that. But he's... Um, it's just an amazing way of working. It's so different. Because mm. you had you had that big speech, didn't you? In the not Market Square, but that kind of courtyard. Yeah, yeah. So was that all improvised as well? Then 
Yeah, it's all improvised. On, on that one, like we'd re- sometimes you might rehearse it a couple of days before. It's like normally on a film set, isn't it? Like you film five days a week and then everybody has two days off or six days and a day off. With Mike, you might shoot for a day, then he might have a day off for the crew and then he might have a rehearsal day with some actors and then he'll shoot the day after. So it's nothing like anything else. Mm. Just that day on the moors, we were we we literally rehearsed it for an hour and then we shot it. Wow. So it felt it felt really fresh. Even when I watched it, it was like it didn't feel like rehearsed in a good way. Mm. So um yeah, he's just brilliant. I mean, I'd advise anyone who who's listening to to watch it because, like like you, I'd never heard of the Peterloo massacre. Yeah. Um, I was on tour in Manchester at the time, and a friend said, Let, "Let's go watch it." Yeah. I was like, never, never even heard of it before, and it, no. it's such a shame that it's not taught, isn't it? It's such yeah, a shame. definitely. But I think this, I think not to get too political, but I think there's a lot of things that I know we talked this year. There's been a lot, obviously, about George Floyd and the teaching of slavery and things like that, and there's lots of things that. I think they leave off the curriculum or historically I've done because it put, it makes the government look bad. Mm. I mean, we always talk about like, oh, Second World War. We don't talk about all the other things we did before that and after that. And it's the same with Peter Lumasca. Basically, the government slaughtered peaceful protesters. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Which is still happening in some places around the world, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it is an important story. Hmm. So if you can, it's on Amazon Prime, I think, isn't it? So it's yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, while while we're sort of talking a bit political, we're we're running out of time, which is a, a massive shame. But I want to let you get to the football. <laughs> I want to ask, what time? What time are we on? Uh, well, we're running at about forty-five minutes. So we're oh, only wow. okay, cool. minutes left. So um, I want to ask you a slightly yeah slightly political question, and ask you if you think your gender maybe has affected your career and and your work, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. We were talking just before the podcast. I, there was a report that came out the other day about gender and how in theatre that it's still still really difficult for women. There's so many more parts for men, and I think I think I've been sort of lucky in a way because I'm not necessarily am like this, but because I'm quite. I think a lot of people see me as alpha or masculine and it's only because of my voice and where I'm from. I'm really not that um, inside. I sometimes come across as that. And I think sometimes because the industry is filled with like a lot of male producers and a male directors, it's male dominated. I think sometimes we have had it easier. I know it's a difficult profession for everybody, but I think, you know, I support the 50, 50 thing. I think we should, we need to be doing more with gender diversity I think there's still more to go I think we do need to talk about class more because I feel like that sometimes gets lost when other things get involved and I think class and and how people get into art and the the money that they have to go and watch art or be involved with that I mean it's amazing in the industry how many people's parents were actors that's fine that's great and they're all great actors because they've been around it but you sort of it's I think it's easy to forget how difficult it is for people like for myself I got lucky but like from, you know, being from Huddersfield, you know, I didn't even have drama in my school. We didn't do it. We, really? you know, no, they didn't have drama or theatre studies. You know, it's probably part of the reason why I concentrated so much on science because I was good at it, but there wasn't really theatre at school. So I think, I think gender and race and all those things, I think we need to be working even more to find that, um, to find that balance and equality for everyone. 
And I, and I, but I think that goes, a lot of producers, I think, have got to find that talent, got to go out there and find that talent and find people from different walks of life. Like, you know, I was saying to someone the other day, you watch a lot of films about the working class in Britain or you watch period dramas. And a lot of the time, I don't know, they're sort of shown in a light that's sort of, it's always like kitchen sinky and depressing. And actually, weirdly, having I've grown up around and in the working class, they're having the best time out of all of us. Yeah. So it's quite a middle-class way of looking at it. I did a show the other um came out in 2019, Don't Forget the Driver, set in Bognor Regis. And um, great show, great actors, well-written, uh, Toby Jones and Tim Crouch. But some of my arguments sometimes with that show was like, those people are sometimes like those people, the, uh, the lowest rung of society, although they've got all these problems that they have to deal with, weirdly, because they face that adversity a lot of the time, that they're having fun. Hmm. They, sort of have to, they have to laugh or they'd cry every day. And I feel sometimes we, you know, when we show the working classes in this country, we show them it's always sort of downtrodden, and which they are, but they're also fun as hmm. well. Yeah. That's a great answer. Thanks for that. Um, I think you touched on some lovely and important things there. Um, I just want to finish on one question, if I can, one last question. And with COVID and that lot and theatres being closed at the minute, I want to ask you what you think theatres for and, and the role it plays in, in society. I think theatre is there to provoke society to entertain primarily those two things. And I think you can do that if things are well written and come together like, say, Jerusalem or you, you can you can find an entertaining way to provoke people into thinking differently about themselves. That sounds really wanky, but that's the first thing that's popped into my head. I mean, I think that there needs to be a real talk in theatre about what it's for so these conversations are good but also who it's for you know you do feel it i do feel in london sometimes like i did two plays at the almeida last year i love the almeida the the people that go to watch theater at the almeida are really rich and it's like what islington's like a really poor borough most of it it's sort of like what do we make it for and who is it for and why do we do it like for me i want you want kids from where I'm from to see me and go, oh, I think I could do that. Mm. You want kids from Islington, from a council state, to believe that they can get there. And I think sometimes there's too many barriers up to that, whether it's, I mean, ticket prices are too expensive in London. Mm. But also, um, I think, again, the middle classes and the upper classes sort of, because it's so poorly paid, they get, they get more chances you know, I can I can count hundreds of actors I've worked with, working class actors who've given up. And and I, and I and I think, you know, you look at the national, you look at freelancers. I don't feel like any any of those theatres in London have done enough for freelancers in this crisis. You know, directors, designers, lighting designers, sound designers, actors. We've all sort of really struggled through this. And yet the theatres have sort of got money from the government, but they've not thought about helping any freelancers out of work there. Mm. Any of that money, you know? So I feel like, I feel like theatre, but maybe this might be a good thing for theatre. You know, sometimes you have to have the disaster, then rebuild from it. Hopefully we can build back in a more diverse and eclectic way. 
Yeah. Um, but who knows? It might not be, it might take a few, that one might take a while because obviously economics do come into it. That's an ideal world. And obviously now like things like Jerusalem will come back, things that they know they can make money from. But I think down the line for me, I want more people to have more opportunities, different people. You see the same people in the same things. And I, and I'm sort of talking myself down here because I'm part of that problem in a way. In what way, may one ask? Well, in a way that, that, that you know, I did two plays back-to-back at the Almeida. I did, sort of didn't, sort of should, in a way, that's great for me, but I could have done one and someone else could have done the other. And I feel like sometimes, like, and I'm not, and that's like, I'm not going to turn work down because we know how difficult it is for everybody. But I also feel like the, there's ways in, in which they can be more diverse in their casting, that people that haven't worked at those theatres get more of a look in. That's all of them in town. Because I think there's loads of talent out there that don't get the chance. Hmm. Often enough. Spot on. For me. Spot on, yeah. Great. Uh, I think that's a lovely, um, a lovely strong point to end on. Yeah. Uh, Danny Crane, thanks so much for this, mate. This has been uh, brilliant. I'd know the word for it. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for asking me. Cheers. <laughs>